15 years. It's something I didn't do. I didn't know anything about. Holy innocent man, I want my father die in a British prison for something he didn't do. He is innocent, the Macquarie is innocent. I know what happened was a tragedy at Guildford, Woolwich, Birmingham. But you don't compound the tragedy by making other tragedies. I feel better towards the judiciary, towards the police who framed me, fabricated evidence. But I have nothing but time and respect for all the English people who helped me. And there's been so, so many of them. It was Jerry Conlon who spent, as you heard him say, 15 years in jail as one of the Guildford Four following the 1974 IRA Guildford pub bombing. Five people died. Uh, there's a new play called In the Name of the Sun. It chronicles the, uh, the aftermath of his release. Richard O'Rourke wrote the book In the Name of the Sun, the Jerry Conlon story, the play's based on it. O'Rourke is himself a former Irish Republican prisoner. He was a leading figure in the 1981 Maze or Long Cash prison hunger strike. And he and Jerry Conlon grew up together in Belfast in the Falls Road area. O'Rourke is the author of several books about the Troubles, including Blanket Men, an untold story of the H-block hunger strike. And his play, In the Name of the Sun, is coming to the Auckland Arts Festival in March next year. And Ricky O'Rourke joins me now from Belfast. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, Kim. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you. It's, the other side of the world. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for staying out relatively late for well, us. Um, it's only, it's only nine o'clock here. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, I forgot the time thing, me Bob. Um, what were you in prison for, Ricky? I was in prison. I was in prison actually um, four times. I was interned without trial on two two occasions in the early nineteen seventies, and I was in for another charge of conspiracy to murder, which which um, which I beat, which which didn't stand up. And then I was eventually imprisoned for an IRA um, bank robbery. Which you were guilty of? Absolutely. I got eight years for it. And, and, I, and I did six. And you were in Long Cash at the time of the hunger strikes? Well, I was, I was on, on what was called the blanket protest. The blanket protest was a protest by Republican prisoners. British were trying to criminalise the Republican struggle through the prisoners. They were trying to criminalise the prisoners and hence the Republican struggle. And to do that, they had to get us to conform to prison rules, wear prison uniforms, etc. We refused to do it and we ended up on a protest. We never left our cells for four years and we were involved in a, in a dirty protest where we put our, our screech on the walls and we racked the cells and we lived we lived with a blanket, literally a blanket and, a, and an old um, mattress for four for four years. So you never left the cell for four years. No. Well, we, I, we, we left the cell once a month. I left the cell once a month 
to get a visit with my wife and that was it. But we never washed for four years. And I had a beard down the down to my belly button. We never did our teeth. We never did anything. Um, we were just on a dirty protest, and that's and that's the way it was. And we got we, we got some very the, the prison authorities um, lathered in this every chance they got. I mean, we we, we got beat up hope. And the hunger strikers, you weren't one of them. But I think you fronted that campaign, did you not? Well, I was one of the prison leadership. I was the, um, the prisoner's public relations officer. It was I, I and another guy. Well, there were several of us, but principally myself and, and the OC, the officer commanding the IRA prisoners, were the day-to-day guys who ran the hunger strike from the jail. And uh, my job, I mean, it was he and I who picked the hunger strikers. And uh, our job was to try to bring about the the conditions whereby the British would, would, would give us our demands. My job was to put out public relations statements and keep on top of the, the, the public relations aspect of it. And you've suggested that the hunger strike could have been called off but the IRA commanders rejected a deal because it did not suit them in the lead-up to an election. Well, well in, in actual fact, this, the, the, the sequence of events uh, that, that, that around which this occurred happened on the 30th of June, started on the 30th of June 1981, when the British put out a very difficult statement um, and by that stage, four hunger strikes, four, four hunger strikers had already died: Bobby Sands, Francis Hughes, Raymond McCreese, and Patsy O'Hara. And our fifth hunger striker, Joe McDonald, was coming to critical point. So the fifth put out this very hard statement, and I looked at it and I was very depressed, and it just didn't seem to be any way out. So I got permission from my OC, the guy who was with me, and I wrote a what was called the Fourth of July statement. And in that statement, I tried to bridge the gap between the two sides. It was it was acknowledged by everyone as a very conciliatory statement. And as a result of that statement, the British made an offer through a back channel. And the offer came into the prison, and McFarlane and I accepted the offer. He wrote the outside, and there was a committee of IRA people who... Um, IRA people and Sinn Féin people who were in a position to their 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 their, their task was to sort of way advise us, but they ended up absolutely running the whole thing, and then they were they superseded us. They sent us we sent a call out saying we accepted the offer. They sent one back. Actually, it was Jerry Adams who sent it back, saying that he's surprised that we accepted the offer. That what was in the offer did not validate the deaths of the first four hunger strikers. And consequently, the hunger strike went on and another six hunger strikers died. And you're suggesting that this was because the Irish Republican candidate, Owen Caron, would have a better chance of winning the Fermanagh and South Tyrone by-election if the strike was ongoing on polling day? Well, that was one of the... No, it's not just as simple as that. That was one of the suggestions that was made because it was very important for the launch of the peace process that politics was seen to work 
And Adams and Co. were already on a peace, uh, a, a, a peace trajectory as opposed to being on an armed struggle directory, trajectory, which is where the IRA was. They were, they were, they were by this stage convinced that the armed struggle had run out of steam, that it wasn't going to work. Um, so there's a suggestion that they needed to get Owen Curran elected, as you say. And the only way he could get elected was if there was a hunger strike. Because without a hunger strike, people wouldn't have voted for him. Um, because he was a prisoner candidate. And that was a seat that had been held by the by another nationalist party and by unionists. Sinn Féin definitely wouldn't have. Owen Curran definitely wouldn't have wanted unless there was a hunger strike. That's one suggestion. The other suggestion is that is that they overplayed their hand. This, they, they anticipated, perhaps, that this was... A negotiating process, a negotiation process, and that there would be a second more substantial offer, and uh, there wasn't. Right. Just in I mean, your first suggestion implies, in a in a broader philosophical way, that the ends justify the means. Well, I, I think that's I think that's a fair point. I mean. I absolutely think that's a fair point. I think that's a, a position that some leaders of the Republican movement took um, at various stages in the campaign. And uh, I mean, it's been argued, people have argued with me that leadership is about taking hard decisions, but leadership is about doing the things about the end problem to justify the means. I don't agree with that because it leads to a position where anything is explainable and anything can be excused. I don't think that that's a, that's a human or a valid position to take. Did you ever think that, Ricky? No. I never thought. I always had a, I always had a, I always, I had a belief that the, 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 the British presence in Ireland was wrong, that, that it was colonial in nature, that the British um, had no right to be in Ireland, and the only people who, who had a right to determine the future of Ireland and, and was its people. And, and I, I, but again, there has to be, there has to be parameters and everything. You cannot have anarchy. I mean, Anarchy leads to more anarchy and the breakdown of society, and that's what the end justifies the means ultimately means. But you you carried out an armed bank robbery, isn't isn't that a bit anarchic? No, I mean that, a bank robbery is about stealing money for your organisation. Yes, and you could say it's a bit anarchic. But I was a member of a revolutionary organisation, and. So you take orders, but the point of the matter is, is that you could just as easily, um, I mean, there's no one hurt during this bank robbery. Yeah, but you were armed. They could have done, right? Well, well, they weren't going to give me the money without the gun. (laughs) Sorry, I I do. I I take your point. I take your point. You know, they're hardly going to say, no gun, it was your money, there you are. So, I mean, but, I mean, it's a long way from robbing a bank where no one's hurt. 
than kind of crazy acts of madness and terrorism, etc. I do want to talk about Jerry in a minute, but how did the IRA respond to your criticism? I mean, you were critical in your book, Blanket Men. And well, they afterlives. Were very, they were very... Sorry, oh, beg your pardon. No, and they afterlives were, as well. Carry on. No, no, sorry. Funny, sorry, Kim. I beg your pardon. I thought you were funny. They... The, the reaction was absolutely drastic. They... they. I went from being someone who was admired, I, I, I think, I hope, and uh, someone who was seen as... Uh, as a good person. I went from that to being absolutely ostracized within my own community. Um, people, who had, people who had known me all their lives walked past me. People with whom I'd been in the cell with walked past me. There was writing on the wall about me uh, being called Hitch Black Traitor. Uh, there was rumors circulating that I was drinking wine with winos, etc. Um, and for for years, even up to the present day, there are guys who I knew very well, who I grew up with, who still don't speak to me, simply because I wrote Blanket Man and I made the world aware that there was an offer, that that offer had been accepted by the prisoners and rejected by a circle of Republicans um, who had their own agenda, whatever whatever it was. And, and it, was, it was awful for me. It wasn't just for me. It was for my children and all. My kids couldn't go into, for example, I went into one of the local pubs uh, and they were out with their friends and they were absolutely lit upon by growing men about me. They've never told me this until about a couple of years later, but they were lit upon and there ended up a real shouting match. So, I mean, it was very, very, very difficult for me and my family. And to a certain extent, it still hasn't changed. What were you doing? Just give me a sort of chronological sense here. What were you doing when Jerry went over to London, came back to Belfast, was subsequently arrested for the Guildford bombing. Well, I was, I was, by that stage, as I said, I was getting, I was getting locked up every, I was getting interned, then I was getting, getting turned without trial, and then I was let out, and then I was back in again for interned without trial. So I was, I was a known IRA man, and I was under, I, the the presser on keeping me under a very very tight grip. But he was um, not. I mean, the points being made when he went over to London, he'd um, you know he was a bit of a petty criminal and he was drug use and so on. If Jerry had been an IRA sleeper in England and had been responsible for the Guildford bombing, he would never have engaged in drug use. And petty crime as he did, the IRA would not have allowed it, right? Absolutely, Jerry was a hippie. Jerry, Jerry, uh, and 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 and, and, Pat, and Pat, Patty Armstrong, and and uh, Paul Hill, and the 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 girl with them, Carl Richardson. They were hippies. They were they were hanging out in squats, smoking blue, 
uh, drinking, just literally having a good time, as they would see it, going to going to concerts, etc. They certainly had no. I mean, the IRA wouldn't wouldn't have had wouldn't have touched them with the barge pole. I mean, the guys that did do this, the Balcom Street uh, unit, as they became known. They were very, very strict. They, they didn't drink. They, they, they lived in their own places, and they only really ever met whenever they were doing a bombing. So they were a total opposite of where Jerry and Cole were. Jerry and Cole, Jerry and those with them were just unfortunate in that they were Irish. They were in London. They were hippies. They were weak. They were ideal. They would make statements of admission, and that was the crucial element in this. They would make statements of admission, and the British police could then say, we cleared up Guildford. That's, that's the long and the short of it. And then Jerry's father became involved because he went over to London to try to help Jerry out, and he got charged as well. Well, I knew Giuseppe because they lived across the street from me. We, we grew up together. We lived in 6 Peel Street and the Conlins lived in 7 Peel Street. So I grew up with the Conlins. Giuseppe was a very sick man. He had red lead poisoning from working in, in the shipyard. And um, he's a very, very, very uh, timid man. Lovely, lovely person. And he went over to get his son a solicitor. And lo and behold, he goes to his sister's house and he's no sooner in the door then the police raid the house, arrest everyone in it from an eight, from a ten year old kid to Gazappi and everyone in between. I bring them away and charge them with the Guildford bombing. And these people knew nothing. None of them, none of them knew anything about it. And the police knew they knew nothing about it. That was later proved with the release of of, of documents, etc. But Giuseppe died in prison, and you think Jerry never really forgave himself for getting his father involved. He felt terribly guilty about that. But Jerry didn't get Giuseppe involved. That's just that, Kim. Jerry was just an unfortunate guy who was literally picked off the street, brought into the police station, beaten up, hooted, depraved of sleep, not fed, no water, and he eventually he eventually said, to him, "What do you want me to do?" Sign a statement. He signed a statement. Jerry didn't get Gazappi involved. Gazappi was just in trying to help his son, and Gazappi ended up getting fourteen years. And the whole thing was a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. And um, you know, Jerry had that guilt all his days. This very very. Last day, he and I, when he got out, he got out in 1989. And he and I, he and I had a virtually, met virtually right away in Belfast. And it was just lovely. So it was, we're in a record shop. And I seen the back of his head and I shouted at him. And he turned around and hugged each other. And we went and we got drunk, mad drunk. Brilliant. And, um, but he was... He carried that guilt to his damn day. He, and no matter how much you tried to rationalize with them, and I did, me and him, we used to go for breakfast 
every week and we, we could have said anything to each other. We had that closeness because we grew up together. Literally, he was never out of our house and vice versa. And, and I said to him, Jerry, why are you blaming yourself for this? This isn't you. This is the cops. The cops done this to your daddy, not you. But he could never let it go. He could never accept that the guilt wasn't his. And he carried it to his damn day. And that is that is one of the central themes of the play. The the, the guilt that he had and how he showed it and how he demonstrated it and how, how traumatic an effect it had on his life. He got a lot of money. I mean, he got a lot of compensation. He made money out of the movie. Um, and he yeah. blew it all. And according to people who were close to him, and you've written about this in your book, he just he just wanted to get he he wanted to give the money away. He would give lashings of it to everybody he met, as if he did not want it or did not deserve it. Self destructive. What's that about? Well, he was told Jerry was Jerry had absolutely no appreciation of money. When Jerry went into prison, it was something like 20p for a pint of beer. And when he got out, it was four pounds. So, and then he had no appreciation of money. And he, and as you say, he got money. He got a large sum of money for for, for his book, uh, Proved Innocent. He got a, a, an even larger sum of money for his film um, in, the, in the name of the father, which, which Daniel Day-Lewis played him. And then he got something like uh, uh, £550,000 from the British government in compensation. The problem that Jerry had, Kim, was that he couldn't, he couldn't live on the outside. And he, couldn't li- he didn't want to live on the inside, but he couldn't live. Oh, I have. Are you still there, Ricky? Yeah, oh, yeah can you hear me? Yeah, I lost you for a moment. You were saying he couldn't live oh. on the inside, he couldn't live on the outside. No, he couldn't, and, and he, he found it very difficult, and he always sort of dabbled in, in, in uh, marijuana. He loved the marijuana, but the marijuana led on to cocaine, and he, he started taking cocaine, a lot of it, and then he started taking uh, um, the other, the heavier coke. Crack. Uh, Crack. He started taking crack, and he was very, very bad on it. And then Jerry was, Jerry was one of those guys. He'd been walking up the street and he seen a beggar. He'd give the beggar twenty quid. And I mean, I, I got a story was told to me by a lady who was very close to him, one of his girlfriends actually. She said they had a flat in London, and next thing the door opens and Jerry's like the paid paper. But he's leading. He needs in about ten guys, all 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 guys, homeless people, and um, he sends out for Chinese's for them, Chinese takeaways, and and she said, "What are you doing? This is our bloody house. You can't you can't do this." And he says, "What am I going to do? Leave them on the street?" That's the sort of guy he was, and he was he, he had a big heart. I mean, there's no sir buts about that, and he had a very humane side. I mean. Jerry eventually, and this is this is part of the play as well. Jerry eventually weaned himself off crack cocaine, uh, and in the round two thousand, he went. He left. He had to get out of London. London was 
bringing him down. He was absolutely gone. He had to get out of London and he went down to Plymouth, which is on the, the south coast of, of England. And he met a lovely man there, uh, a psychoanalyst, who, who took him through a process whereby he got clean, he got off the drugs, and he and Jerry was a great. He, when he first came out, he was a great human rights activist. It was he who virtually single-handedly uh, brought about the release of the Birmingham Six through agitation in America and, and Congress, etc. And he got off. He got off the gear, and he was right back to his old self. He was right back campaign, campaigning for those who were uh, who, who were down downtrodden for those who were in prison, who were innocent, etc. He was traveling the world. He was advocating for human rights on all sorts of fronts. And he was a pleasure to be with, an absolute pleasure to be with. A, a, a lovely, lovely man, but at the same time, a very sharp man, a man who, who was very politically aware, who could see where he needed to be and what he needed to do and who he needed to bring with him. Jerry, Jerry was very astute, but, um, you know, he was a pleasure to be with. And then, I mean, I, I don't want to be bubbling on, but something amazing happened. His mother died in 2008 and he came back from the funeral. She died in Belfast, so we're all at the funeral. And he came back and there was a letter waiting him awaiting him when he went back to his mother's house and she opened the letter and it was from an old girlfriend who he hadn't been with for 18 years from he, virtually from he got out and um, he looked at he looked at the letter and the girl says I want to meet you so he went and he met her and they had a lunch and she told him you've got an 18 year old daughter and it just blew his mind and he called her Sarah the same name as his mother Sarah and it blew his mind and he he um he just uh, it totally it, it it was like the icing on the cake. He got clean from the drugs, and here he was with the ready-made family. And he actually said to me and him were out having breakfast one morning, and he said to me, "I have something to tell you." I swung what? He says, "I've got a daughter." He says, "Hard hard and happy." He says, "Oh," and he started telling me about it, and I and he, next thing he welled up, and. I, he was just so happy. He was just so absolutely happy. This gregarious, good-natured man. Um, and it's just, it was, it was just such a, such a lovely experience to be with him in that minute, Kim. What killed him in the end, Ricky? Cancer. Yeah. Cancer. He had, he had. Uh, the, the lung cancer, um, I think it was lung cancer. He, he was a very heavy smoker all his days. And um, in the end, it was a very strange thing. I got a call from from, uh, from from him. And he says, I'm in hospital. Secretary was sorry because his sister was on. And so on was a good friend of mine. And on said, uh, Richard, um, Jerry wants you down. And I says, well, what's me down where? I didn't know he was in hospital. Just down to the hospital. I says, what's he doing in there? She says, it's not good. The conversation went on and she, she told me that they suspect he may have lung cancer. And then when I got down to the hospital, she said to me, it's all through him. It's just two weeks before he died. 
So I went in and seen him, and, <clears throat> and he and I had a lovely wee conversation. And as I was going out, he says, Richie, I love you. And I says, I love you. And it was just, oh, I can't tell you how sad it was. I never I never seen him again. That was it. And, and I didn't want to see him again. And about a week after that, he passed. And it was just so, so emotional. And I, I, I mean, I've always, I've always found it difficult to, to keep my, try and, try and keep stoic when I'm talking about him because I get so emotional with him. I don't I mean, I don't usually, but Jai has this way of getting to me. And it was, it was awful sad. So we reflected that in the play. The play is, I'm not, I'm not in the, I'm not here to, to promote this play. But it's an emotional story. It's a humorous story. Great humor. Because he's a very funny guy. I was, just, I was thinking about humour. You tell the story, I think, in your book. And Anne, you mentioned Jerry's sister, Anne. And she said to you, and this is like the rock star side of Jerry's life once he got out with all that money and he made very good friends with Johnny Depp. So yeah. Anne tells you about this trip that they all went on. She says, there was me, my mammy, and our David, who was a thalidomide victim. Now, David yeah. had no arms, but he was our yeah. driver. He drove with his feet, you see. My daughter, yeah. Mary-Kate, who would have been only six at the time, was also there. We picked up Johnny Depp in Dublin. We stayed in Sinead O'Connor's apartment. And then she goes on to say that Johnny and Jerry went out on the lash that night and handcuffed David to the bridge in Dublin. When asked how it was possible to handcuff a man with no hands to a bridge, Anne exclaimed, it was his artificial hands. They handcuffed his artificial hands to the bridge. It was a well, crazy time. Well, I mean, Johnny Tapp wrote the, was wonderful of him. Johnny wrote the foreword for the book. Yeah. And, and that was about 3,000 words. That was a fantastic forward. <clears throat> I didn't know Johnny could write like that, but clearly he, he's a very talented writer as well as an actor. But he wrote a fantastic forward and he sent me a, the most lovely, he sent me a book uh, with the most lovely um, personal message. But, but that was a wee bit in the crazy say too. I mean, uh, as they were taking dope, right? The two of them were taking dope, but they were drinking. More, it was more drinking than anything. Anne said to me, Richie, they called me Richie. That was my mother I was called when I was a kid. Richie, they never missed a bloody pub from Dublin all the way down to Kerry, all through Cork, and right back over to Dublin. And they said, they stopped at every pub, and she said, David, David, the young Flinamite kid, he he was just absolutely out of it. He the two boys the two boys had he hadn't the stand power to keep up with them too. They just went absolutely bananas and um I, I don't know. I heard I heard Aunt told me that that the that was both of them the women were going mad for them and that doesn't surprise me. 
Jerry was a big hit with the girls. <laughs> I, we're looking forward tremendously, Ricky, to, to seeing the play. Uh, in March, it's part of the Auckland Arts Festival. I'm sorry you're not coming with it, but maybe another time. That was Richard O'Rourke, who is the author, the author of a book in the name of the Sun, about Jerry Conlon and the co-author of a play of the same name. 